The title of my message this morning is We Are the Temple of the Living God. We are the temple of the living God. You know, on his way to Jerusalem, where he was likely to be arrested, Paul stopped at the small island of Miletus, which is just off the coast of modern-day Turkey, near where the ancient city of Ephesus was located. Gathered there on that island to meet with him were the leaders of the church of Ephesus, the elders. Here's part of what Paul said to them, knowing that this would be the last time he ever saw them. He said this in, um, in Acts rather, chapter 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, if you know anything about Paul's journey and Paul's ministry at Ephesus, and you come across that language, you might say, there must be some mistake here, Paul. I mean, you're speaking to the Ephesian elders, right? The church that you started in Acts 19, after you left Corinth in Acts 18, the place you spent two years of your life pouring into this church plant, the church you described in your letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 15, in this way, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul, don't worry about this church. They're in good hands. They're a strong church. Good people. Solid. Fast forward 35 years. John is writing the Revelation on the island of Patmos as an exile. He writes to the church at Ephesus on behalf of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. And he says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Way to go, church, right? Sounds like you have kept up Paul's instructions. You've stayed alert to these wolves that might come in. Unfortunately, that's not all John relayed from Jesus to the Ephesian church. The next verse. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The Ephesians were doing great dealing with false teachers, but they had failed to keep doing the loving works that they were known for just in 35 years' time. You know, today's church in America is more of the opposite of Ephesus. We're good at doing loving things. We're not that great at putting error out of the church. 
When you read on in Revelation, you find out that Ephesus was not the norm in that area. The church at Pergamum was tolerating two different kinds of false teaching. The church at Thyatira had a false prophetess named Jezebel who was seducing the church with sexual immorality. Thirty years ago, an author named Joseph Bailey wrote this. Thirty years ago. The evangelical church, speaking of America, is sick. So sick that people are crowding in to join us. We're a big flock. Big enough to permit remarriage of divorced people beyond the exceptions of God's Word. Big enough to permit practicing homosexuals to pursue their lifestyle in our membership. Big enough to tolerate almost anything pagans do. We're no longer narrow. It's a wide road of popular acceptance for us. That's what he wrote describing the evangelical church in America 30 years ago. Do you see any reversal of trend in, in our country in the last 30 years? You know, almost every religious denomination in our country has now embraced same-sex marriage. Almost every one. On just this one issue, the Christian church was split 44% in favor and 48% against, according to Pew Research. And that was 10 years ago. When it comes to the decline and death of a church, most churches do not die because of persecution or outward pressure, opposition from the outside. They die because of danger that comes from within. And in our text this morning, Paul gives a very personal and very passionate call to the Corinthians to watch out for this danger for some very important reasons. So first, I'm going to give you three points this morning if you're taking notes. The first thing that Paul talks about is poor partnerships. We see this in verses 14 down through the beginning of verse 16. Poor partnerships. Let's take a look at those verses again. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Let me give you a, a, just a brief rundown at what, how this text works today. It's a, it's a little bit of an unusual text. So you'll notice right away in verse 14, there's a command, an exhortation, right? Don't be unequally yoked. Then there are five questions, rhetorical questions, that Paul gives us. We'll look at it in just a minute. Then he gives us the reason why we should not be unequally yoked in verse, the second part of verse 16. We are the temple of the living God. Then he goes on to give us at least four supporting references from the Old Testament to that statement that he just made. And then finally, in verse 1 of chapter 7, he boils it down to a conclusion, an application for the Corinthians and, of course, for us. 
So that's kind of how this text flows in Paul's mind this morning. But he starts off by saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We don't live in a society that uses yokes anymore. We have tractors. All right? But at the same time, if you were to get on a plane and go to some third world country, you would find that a lot of the third world doesn't have access to tractors, and a lot of the third world still uses yokes. A yoke was used for several purposes, but primarily in a farming and an agrarian environment, it was used to harness two draft animals together, animals that would pull things like plows, till the ground. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10 refers to this technique. It says in the law of Moses, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And, and Paul may have had that reference in mind when he said this. Do not be unequally yoked. Because here in the law, it says don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, just knowing those two animals, you can imagine some of the reasons why he might say that, right? An ox is large and strong, much stronger and larger than a donkey. If they're pulling together, you can see there's going to be some problems in the way that those lines go down the field. They're going to be going all over the place if, if the ox doesn't you know, completely twist and strangle the donkey along the way. He's telling us Christians, believers, and unbelievers are like two different breeds. We shouldn't be yoked together. We're not going the same direction. And so there's, there's, there should be some kind of separation here between us. Now what does that mean? We'll get into that more. Paul's saying here that in plowing through our lives, to use that picture, we need partnerships that are fitting, that are appropriate, that are godly. And he makes this picture far clearer in the next five questions that increase the intensity of what he just said. Now, as I mentioned, these are all rhetorical questions, right? They all give the same answer. They're all looking for an answer that would say, none at all. None at all. So I'm going to read these five questions again, and I want you, after each question, to call back to me the answer. None at all. You ready? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Are you getting the idea? These are all poor partnerships that actually make Paul's point. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, there's a few other Old Testament references to yokes he may have been referencing back when Israel was pictured as being yoked with Egypt back in the times of their slavery. Or you can go back to Psalm 106, verse 28, where it talks about the Israelites and the women of Moab who were committing adultery at Mount Peor. And the text says that they yoked themselves to the Baal, the idol of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Paul's thinking about these kinds of illegitimate, poor relationships where we tie our hearts and our destinies together with others. Now, do we read this passage and see it guiding us with regard to marriage between believers and unbelievers? Like 
Scripture is very clear about this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you remember. Um, And Scripture is very clear about this issue. Christians marry Christians. Believers marry believers. Don't cross that line. But Paul in this passage is speaking about something different than a marriage relationship. And he's not saying that Christians should avoid all contact with unbelievers either, right? For example, if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, we know from Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, the believer should not generally seek a divorce from them, right? If they're already married. If invited to the home of an unbeliever, a believer is free to attend. You can work with unbelievers and work under unbelievers. Unbelievers are not forbidden to attend Christian gatherings like the ones that we're in right now. He wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 14, right? So, as I mentioned in the introduction, even when it comes to subjects like homosexuality, let me be very clear, homosexuals are welcome to attend our church services. Anyone is, 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 is welcome to attend our church services. Now, to join with us, to yoke with us as members going the same direction toward heaven, we need to have a talk about what the Bible says about sexuality. There has to be, we have to be going the same direction. But everyone's welcome here. But remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10, that total separation from the immoral, the greedy, the robbers, the idolaters would mean going out of this world altogether, right? This is the idea that some of the monks had, right? Back in the medieval times where they would just leave society and build their own little towns up on the top of mountains. You can still go see them today. They're still, they're still all over Europe. That's not what, what Jesus was teaching. He wasn't teaching us to go out of the world. He was teaching us about being careful about how we yoke up with the world. So what does this command mean? Do not be unequally yoked. Based on the context, and I would point you especially to verses 15 and 16 in these questions, I see this as the unequal yoke as being a specific association with temple worship. False religious worship that Paul is forbidding in this text. So, for example, it's doubtful that if the Apostle Paul was around today, you wouldn't find him attending an interfaith worship service with Muslims or Hindus, for example. Since that would mean being associated with unbelievers in false worship. Paul wouldn't do that. And neither should we. But this isn't where he leaves the conversation. Paul gives us a further explanation for why we should stay away from such poor partnerships in the church. And that is number two, God's powerful promises. His powerful promises. Verse 16 down to verse 18. Remember, he's just said, that we are the temples of the living God. We'll talk about that in a minute. And as soon as Paul said, this happens a lot with Paul, right? He'll be, he'll be going on, he'll say something, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm going to talk about that some more, right? So he just said, we are the temple of the living God. And he's like, oh, 
Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this a little bit. I'm gonna, let's pause for a minute. Let's follow this rabbit trail. I'm going to bring some Old Testament passages into it. Let's just sit and think about this, what I just said. Let's think about it. Let's marinate this. Let's let this get deep into our soul before we move on to application. Let's look at verses 16b. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. and You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Think about the song we sang uh, just a little bit ago before the message. I am not my own. This is what Paul is teaching in verse 16. We are the temple of the living God. What does that mean? The temple, of course, was the place where heaven and earth met. It was the place where God met with His people. Now, brothers and sisters, what Paul has just said is that we are now the place where heaven and earth meet. Where God comes to meet His people. Because you are the temple of God, this is where people meet Jesus. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Just stop and think about that. You are the temple of the living God. And then Paul just goes on to shower us with Old Testament references. Notice he he begins this section by saying, as God said. Right? So that points us back to the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. It's being written. He's pointing pointing us backwards. And he says, uh, starting at the end of verse 16 all the way through 18, he's emphasizing with these references what it means that we are the temple of God. And he uses at least four uh, that I can see to Old Testament passages here. Let's look at the first promise that he gives us here. The first of three powerful promises. The first is in verse 16, and he pulls in two Old Testament passages here. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. And Ezekiel 37, 26 and 27. So those two verses combine here where he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. That's the first one. And then I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's beautiful, isn't it? In fact, the promises contained here are repeated again and again in the Old Testament. You know why these verses sound so familiar? You've heard them a bunch of times. They're all over the, New, the Old Testament. They're in places like Exodus 25 and 29 and Jeremiah and other spots. They're finally quoted at the end of the Bible. Do you remember? In Revelation 21, verse 3, that I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people talking about the eternal joy of the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, Paul, by using these passages, is telling us there is no greater privilege than that of belonging to God. There's no greater privilege of His dwelling with us. That's part of what it means that we are the temple of God. God dwells with us. And it's glorious. He makes this powerful promise because this is who He made us to be. How much meaning does this add to our lives? 
How much motivation should this draw out of us? And that's the power of these promises. They change our direction because He has changed our destination. Here's the second promise, verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. That's Isaiah 52, 11 and 12. Then I will welcome you. That's Ezekiel 20, 34. What's interesting about the first reference here from Isaiah 52 is that that whole passage is talking about God's promise that He is going to bring Israel back from their exile in Babylon. Now notice what, what Paul is doing here. He's saying this promise that was given to the exiles is fulfilled in you too. Jews and Gentiles who are made a part of His church in Jesus Christ. That's where the final fulfillment of this promise comes. The rescue of Jews and Gentiles through the death and resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises about bringing Israel back out of exile. You are a part of God's prophecies. You are part of His promise. You are part of His plan. That's pretty amazing too. If you stop and think about that. And again, this is who we are because this is who He's made us to be. How much meaning does this add to our lives? What kind of motivation should this draw out of our lives? Jesus changed our direction by changing our destination. There's a third promise in verse 18. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Brothers and sisters, this language is used only one other place that I know of. Uh, maybe you remember the story of 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. Let me summarize it and maybe it will become familiar to you. David looks around his palace. He's got a great palace. He's looking around at all the, the cedar panels that he's got on all his walls. And then he looks over and he realizes that God's dwelling place is a tent. So he says to Nathan, the prophet, hey, I've got this great idea. How about we make God a palace? I'm going to make God a palace with cedar wood, just like mine. What do you think, Nathan? Nathan says, I think it's going to be awesome. Right? Let's do it. Nathan goes home, goes to bed. God appears to him in a vision and says, it's not awesome, Nathan. It's not awesome. I don't want David to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build him a house. I'm going to build him a dynasty. And so in 2 Samuel 7, he makes this promise looking through Solomon all the way to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, the angel Gabriel brings this up when he appears to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. He brings all this up, this whole promise thing. And that's the verse Paul's quoting here. 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. Let me read it for you. He shall build a house for my name. 
And I will, est- I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to me a Son. So that promise about the coming of Jesus the Messiah through the line of David, Paul takes it and applies it to us. And Paul expands that original promise to include men and women, sons and daughters, who are united to Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying this. All you who are in Jesus are the descendants of David that were promised all along. You are the house of David. You are the dynasty of David. You are the offspring of David in Jesus. That's pretty amazing. I don't know about you. When you, when you sit back and think about these rich promises that really are some of the pillars of the Old Testament that Paul takes and says, this is all part of what it means that you are the temple of the living God. That should get you a little excited. That should get you a little excited. How much meaning does this add to our lives? What kind of behavior should this draw out of our lives? And that's where Paul finally takes us in chapter 7, verse 1, when he describes, thirdly, our purifying purposes. Our purifying purposes. Let's read that verse again. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Alright, start at the beginning of the verse. Did you hear it? Since we have these promises, beloved. He's referring back to the promises He just gave from the Old Testament. Just the beginning of verse 1 alone shows you and I already have these powerful promises. We have them. And the reason we have them is because we're united to Jesus. So after hearing what God has done, that's what we call the the indicatives. He's told us what He has done. Now He gives us what He wants us to do about it. We call that the imperatives. And this is something Paul does all the time in his writing. Look for it. What God has done, and now what you're supposed to do as a result. One author wrote this. Paul's demand here, verse 1, is personal and comprehensive. Body and spirit means everything that impacts the believer's life. The demand is also moral for progressive moral transformation. from bring, or He says, bringing holiness to completion. And this author goes on to say, the great tragedy for so many is that as they get older, they don't get any holier. Time has been the enemy. They left their moral apex, their high point, in junior high school. They were better boys than they are men. Holiness is 
farther from completion. And he says the demand for holiness is also fearful. It's in the fear of God. These powerful promises, brothers and sisters, that we've just read, should awaken in us purifying purposes for our lives as to why we would not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. In the bigger context of what Paul has been telling us in writing, these purifying purposes are also meant to open our hearts wide in affection for one another. Remember last week? Chapter 6, 1-13, through where Paul talked about the fact that they had opened up their hearts and now we need to widen our hearts too. Christian love, the importance of that. The thing that Ephesus forgot, stopped doing 35 years later. Paul's going to pick that up again next week. Look at chapter 7 and verse 2. Look where we pick it up next week, next Sunday. Make room in your hearts for us. This is in his mind as he's saying all this. These powerful promises should awaken in us purifying purposes so that, as he told us in last week's text, we should seize the day. Right? Now's the time. This is the day of salvation. It's evidenced through His great love for us back in chapter 5, 14. That's what motivates us, right? The love of Christ. Also based on making us a new creation in Him, 5.17, right? Because He loves us, because He's made us a new creation, because this is the day that we need to take advantage of, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Remember that from last week? Now's the time. So since God has changed our direction by changing our destination, all of us were on a one-way trip to hell because of our sin. But by the mercy of God, He has opened our eyes. He has brought us His Word. His Spirit has convicted us of sin. And He has turned us around to go a different direction. And that affects how we live. That's Paul's message. So what is our purpose? Since we are the temple of God, since we are the fulfillment of these powerful promises, since we are His sons and daughters by adoption through Jesus Christ, then let us continue to become more and more what He has declared us to be. His holy temples. That's Paul's application. And ours. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back to the front as they're coming. I want to read you a paragraph from a commentary that summarizes the text well and, and, and kind of uh, brings us to a response that I want to, I want to feed off of. Listen to this. Consider who you are if you are united to Jesus. You are part of a living, growing temple where God Himself dwells. In the Old Testament, the supernatural collided with the natural in a physical building where with severely limited access, humans could meet with God in His glory. 
In the New Testament, the supernatural collides with the natural in a physical body. Where with unlimited access, think about that, humans can meet with God in His glory. The Old Testament temple repelled the sick, the deformed, the unclean. The New Testament temple attracts the sick and the deformed and the unclean. We no longer enter a temple of wood and stone to meet with God. God entered into a temple of flesh and blood to meet with us and to join us to that temple. If this is true, the author writes, how else could we live but in marveling gratitude and wonder, awestruck at the reverent dignifying of us that God has graciously enacted. Yeah, that's what Judy was doing when she got up to read the Scripture this morning. She was marveling. She was awestruck. Because this, these are big, amazing things that God has done. Let me give you four final points of application to think on. Maybe five. Number one, do you realize who you are in Christ? Not just theologically. Practically. Do you realize who you are in Christ? God's temple. David's house the adopted children of God Himself. That's pretty amazing stuff to put on your resume. Get lost in, in wonder a little bit, church. Number two, are you being diligent to bring holiness to completion in your life? Or as the one uh, commentator mentioned, are you stuck in junior high? How are you more like Jesus today than last year? What defilements of body and spirit need to be cleansed? Number three, are you on guard? Are you on alert to the dangers within, the potential dangers within the body of Christ? Are you watching for any sign a false teaching. We need to be. We can't be yoked up with unbelievers. Number four, are there relationships, partnerships in your life that have the potential to put you in a compromising worship situation? As the temple of God, what will you do about that if and when it comes. And finally, does any of this apply to you at all? <laughs> or do you find yourself this morning here lost? Truly lost. An unbeliever in Jesus Christ.
Would you like to find help this morning in becoming a follower of Jesus? There are only two ways to live. Our own way and God's way through Jesus Christ. We would love to show you how to start on God's way for your life. And right after our service, if you're in that position, just turn to a Christian near you and say, I want to become a follower of Jesus. And they're going to help you take those first steps. And if they can't, they're going to get somebody that can. You know, sometimes in a service, we might have as part of our liturgy, the things we go through, like songs and prayers and things like that, Sometimes we may have a prayer of confession. Um, We've done that at different times when we've had extended prayer. A prayer of confession or a time for people to confess their sins to the Lord privately. Sometimes we, we take time to reflect before the Lord's Supper and things like that. This morning we're going to end with a song of confession. And I hope that as you sing it to the Lord, because it's a prayer, that you'll think about these questions that I've just asked. And if you need any help in your struggles with sin, whether you're a believer or not, please let someone know so we can help you. That's the hardest step, but it's the first step toward getting help. Let someone know. And we'd be delighted to help you. Show you from God's Word a better way, a way that leads to life. Let's stand together and let's sing this song of confession to the Lord.